Hey, this is Kate Nocera. And I'm Charlie Warzel. And you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to drill down on two specific stories. One, healthcare repeal is back. So joining us to talk about that will be Paul McLeod, uh, who covers healthcare and Congress for us. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what the heck is going on with North Korea. Uh, this week is the United Nations General Assembly, and North Korea is on the front of everyone's minds there. So Deputy World Editor Hayes Brown will be joining us for that discussion. Charlie, you have been on vacation for a couple of weeks. Is that right? That is correct. And I, am, I am now back. How, how connected were you with the world when you were... Where were you? You were off hiking in the Swiss Alps? Doing a little sound of music. <laughs> yes, uh, yodeling practice, etc. Yep. Yeah, the whole the whole point was to be completely disconnected. So I came back over the weekend and found myself just utterly lost. And so I, I kind of wanted to ask you to give me a rundown of, of, of what I missed because it's one of those things when you come back from something after being away where it's, you missed kind of everything but also nothing and the world is just kind of the same but maybe a little worse and yeah i want to i, I want to yeah. know what i missed think, think, things have gotten uh, a little dark uh, trump maybe made a deal with chuck schumer and nancy pelosi uh to protect dreamers uh in exchange for some more border security but not wall and it was very confusing as you might imagine, because then like there was a lot of walk back and really you'll be shocked to hear this, but like no one knows anything on that. Um, There were two earthquakes in Mexico City, which is horrible. There were several hurricanes. The Juggalos marched on Washington, D.C. Of course. uh, To to protest uh, the FBI designating them as a gang. Hillary Clinton published a book and spawned many think pieces about whether or not she should have written said book. And uh, there's a new iPhone that will be able to be unlocked with your face. I hear it's expensive. It sounds terrifying. I really don't want anything (laughs) to be unlocked with my face. So that's, that's, that's it. So the earth is rebelling against us. Technology is dystopian, and the 2016 election is still going on in our hearts. That's basically it. Good. Oh, wow. I, I should go on vacation more often because, good Lord. And, and, and another thing that happened while you were gone is the healthcare repeal effort, which everyone thought was dead and gone, has revived itself. And joining us to talk about that is Paul McLeod, resident healthcare expert and Canadian. Hello. Paul, you know, last time you were here, you said this is over. I feel like in the last couple of weeks, you've been real sassy about it's never going to happen. It's not coming back. Paul, it is back. Okay. In my defense. Thanks a lot, Paul. In my defense, black is white, up is down, and nothing makes any sense anymore. So, of fair, course. Fair of, point. Of course. Fair counterpoint. I should have seen this coming. I should have seen this coming. Paul, can you explain very briefly, almost like tweet length, what is Graham Cassidy for those who, like myself, may be very confused? Sure. Essentially, Graham Cassidy completely repeals Obamacare. It wraps it all up, and then it just takes the money and sends it off to the states, 
and they say we're going to give you a bunch of flexibility so you guys can create your own systems and do more or less whatever you want within some guidelines so it's the federal government washing its hands of healthcare essentially and a lot of the protections that were in obamacare are going to be gone yeah so can you explain to us a little bit about how the revival of healthcare repeal has been awoken. Yeah, so this one is actually not spearheaded by Republican leadership. It's two senators, essentially, uh, Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, though there are two others, Dean Heller and Ron Johnson, who are also have, have their names on the bill. And yeah, we kind of slept on this one. We were thinking Republicans are not going to try another massive repeal effort only to have it fall apart. That seemed logical at the time, but nope, nope, they are making a full go, mm-hmm. even though they have only till the end of the month to pass this bill because they're using a special budget process in the Senate and that expires at the end of the month. After that, they would need 60 votes, which of course would mean Democrats, which makes it impossible. So to pass it with 50 votes, they have a week and and change essentially, which seems impossible, but they're still giving it a go. Okay, so are they actually gonna vote on this? If they get the votes, this is the the chicken and egg thing. I mean, they're saying they will, they're not actually going to unless they get to 50 votes. But how close they are to that, it's hard to say. They're probably around 47 or 48 is the popular thinking. Um, They're definitely short right now, but they're not that short. So an interesting thing that has happened is uh, Jimmy Kimmel has emerged as a central figure in all of this. (laughs) Champion of 2017 is great. How did that happen? And like, why, why are we talking about Jimmy Kimmel? Jimmy Kimmel, uh, back in May, Jimmy Kimmel had Bill Cassidy on his show. Jimmy Kimmel's uh, newborn son had a health emergency and had to have open heart surgery. And he delivered this uh, very emotional monologue about how he was able to afford insurance and healthcare for his son, but every family needs to have this. And it's wrong in America and a rich country that, that any family would not be able to, to have the high quality of care that he just had, that his family just had. And then Bill Cassidy, who was at the time proposing a, a slightly different bill, uh, went on Jimmy Kimmel and said, I absolutely agree with you. And Republican repeal needs to meet the Jimmy Kimmel test, which is essentially that every family that needs healthcare has access to it regardless of how much money they have. Mm -hmm. And this is where it all blew up, because for Republicans, that word access means something very different than I think most people think it to mean. Jimmy Kimmel interpreted that statement as everyone can get health care if they need it, when in fact, what it meant was we're going to have a bill where we're going to try to lower prices so that people can have access to it, so in theory would be able to buy it. It is a very different thing from any form of universal health care. So now Bill Cassidy is on this Graham-Cassidy bill. This is a bill that is, we don't have a CBO score, which is a whole other thing, but almost certainly going to mean tens of millions of people, fewer people will have health insurance. It opens the door to discrimination against people for pre-existing conditions. It it does a lot of the things that, that Bill Cassidy swore up and down that uh, repeal and replace needs to avoid doing, needs to protect against. So Jimmy Kimmel this week went back on a show in an, just a blistering monologue against Bill Cassidy saying he went on and lied to my face. A senator named Bill Cassidy from Louisiana was on my show and he wasn't very honest. It seemed like he was being honest. He got a lot of credit and attention for coming off like a rare, reasonable voice in the Republican Party when it came to health care. So, 
so my, my question is, as someone who <laughs> is very disoriented at the moment and sure. doesn't, <laughs> what, what is different about this bill than you know, our, the previous iterations that we were dealing with throughout the summer and the spring? Yeah, it's a great question. So in some ways, this is there's a debate about whether this is the most radical of all the repeal bills or not. And on the one hand, former repeal bills, I mean, flat out took hundreds of billions of dollars out of healthcare for the poor and put it into tax breaks for the rich. And this bill does not do that. On the other hand, former Republican Obamacare repeal bills did try to replicate a lot of the things Obamacare did. They still had individual marketplaces for people to buy insurance. They had government subsidies to help you pay for insurance. They protected against pre-existing conditions. Graham-Cassidy essentially gets rid of all of that. It wraps up Obamacare, it throws it into a box, and just hands it off to the states. I mean, quite literally, it just takes the money. It gets rid of everything, takes the money, and just pushes it off to the states and says, you guys do whatever you want. The huge thing that that is causing so much worry right now is that under Obamacare, you, you just can't, it's in law, you cannot deny coverage to someone just because they had cancer as a child. You cannot charge that person more money. Under Graham-Cassidy, you can, in theory, so it's it, it opens, the starting point is you can do whatever you want, but then there's a clause, the, 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 the safeguard is, okay, but anytime you make a change, states have to show and explain how you're still going to preserve access to uh, quality health care for everyone. So the actual words there are, are adequate and affordable. No one knows what that means. If it you has can, not been defined at all. It's not defined in the bill. Can can is it still quality health care if it doesn't cover maternity care, if it doesn't cover uh, a, a certain treatments that you need? Is it still affordable care if you're being charged thirty percent more than someone who doesn't have a pre existing condition? And what happens if the state is just wrong? This is the other thing. If, I mean a lot of these plans involve taking sick people, putting them in separate pools. There's only a flat amount of money now coming from the federal government. If the money's insufficient and they can't afford these people's health care, there's no safeguard. In Obamacare, it's flexible. So if health costs rise, the premiums rise, the supports rise. That doesn't happen here. I mean, it's very, very easy to envision a scenario where you've got this ghettoized health care basi- for people. Basically, basically every major health group from the insurers to patient advocates, which are generally not on the same side of things, right, uh, have said this, uh, no, no thank you. A lot of governors have said, we don't want to do this. Uh, So is it like we're going to do it because we said we would? Like, Who likes it besides (laughs) Bill Cassidy, I guess? Jeez, I don't know of any significant group that has endorsed this bill. I don't know of anyone who's not a Republican who's that's endorsed this bill. I but mean, do even the Republicans like it on the Hill? Because I feel like I've uh, it's pretty lukewarm at best. But this is like, okay, this is our last best chance yeah. to do this. There's, we, there, let's do it. There's no question that yeah, that, that's what's driving this bill. It's not the substance of it. It's yeah. that this is our chance to say we repealed Obamacare. I no mean, one's pe- like people. Sex. People will openly talk about it. Uh, um, Chuck Grassley yesterday, a senator, I mean, was saying that. It doesn't matter really what's in the bill. What's more important is fulfilling the promise. I mean, it, it openly saying it's not the content of the bill. It's just that we have repealed Obamacare, mm-hmm. and, which is just a really reckless way to reform a healthcare system. But, but s- still, it seems like from from what I've heard, like it's going to be one of those razor thin, very close. Like <laughs> despite that, like everyone's going to hold their breath to see what happens. So who are the people that are most likely to vote against this bill? 
it only takes three. The three people who killed the last repeal bill were Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and John McCain of Arizona. The first two, I think, are pretty solid no's. John McCain is quite possibly a no. The only thing that has us kind of guessing there is because he's such close personal friends with Lindsey Graham, who's a co-sponsor of the bill, but he's making a lot of noise that he's opposed to the bill. Also, Rand Paul of Kentucky, who's you know famously a very hardcore libertarian, he's opposed to the bill for <laughs> completely opposite reasons, where he thinks... It, he, it, he doesn't think it does enough. He doesn't think it does near enough. So, he, yeah. so, so that's the four. And there are other... Another thing this bill does is it transfers a lot of money from Medicaid expansion states, which are mostly democratic states to non-medicaid expansion states which are mostly republican states but there are a lot of republicans who are caught in the middle there uh, people like shelly moore capital of west virginia or uh, portman in ohio the guys from louisiana arizona so there are a lot of republicans that their state's going to lose billions of dollars under this formula and any one of them could come out and just say look i'm not I'm not backing this, but we we haven't heard that yet. Everyone's essentially keeping their cards close to the chest. Well, I learn something new every time you come in here. Yeah, so. it's always chaos. I'm it's always, always ca- you're always here in a moment chaos. of chaos. And just when I think I'm done talking to you about it, yeah, here you are. No, I'm I keep crawling I, my way back I, into I the say, podcast Paul, studio. <laughs> You want to come talk about healthcare tomorrow? I, I'm also qualified to talk about juggalos now. If you ever want to, that's do. right. Yeah, you, I'm a juggalo now. <laughs> Paul, I've been converted. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. It feels good. Paul, so Charlie, I, you probably missed this. Sure did. Paul was sent to go cover the juggalo march on Saturday, and had the time of his life. Maybe I think it was a real awakening. Yeah, spiritually got his face painted. Yeah. Wow, learned a lot. You feel like a different person. I did. I learned a lot about Douglas. They were really great. I enjoyed hanging out with them. He was a whoop whoop. Whoop whoop. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. Thanks, guys. And now on to happier subjects. No, not really. It's very stressful. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about North Korea and what the heck is going on over there. Also, Donald Trump has a new nickname for Kim Jong-un that Hayes Brown, deputy world editor, is going to tell us about. Hi, guys. Hi, Hayes. Sorry, I jumped all over that. Hi, Kate. Hello. <laughs> so, Charlie, do you know about Rocket Man? So, as always, I've been piecing things together based off of the website Twitter.com, and that <laughs> is a uh, that's a rough way to live, let me tell you. So, Hayes, tell me all about Rocket Man. And oh, buddy, so so, let's go. So on Sunday, Donald Trump tweets out, as he is wont to do, a message that he had just spoken with South Korean President Moon about North Korea. And in this tweet, he garnered a lot of attention for referring to North Korean leader Kim Jong Un as Rocket Man, as in the Elton John song Rocket Man. That's weird, a lot of people thought to themselves and kind of moved (laughs) on with their lives. Uh, But then when giving his first speech to the U.N. General Assembly on Tuesday, he dropped in the line Rocket Man. He called the leader of North Korea Rocket Man during a speech in which he, by the way, uh, said that if forced to, we will destroy North Korea. That's also something that you might have missed, Charlie. We, uh, if forced, (laughs) will completely get rid of North Korea. And when telling the world this, he referred to North Korea's leader as Rocket Man. So you did some you did some important content today, Hayes. Oh yeah. 
you reached out to the man himself, Elton John. I did. I reached out to Sir Elton John's publicist, and uh, unfortunately, they gave me a solid no comment on how they feel about Trump's usage of this in his as a foreign policy tool, which is really disappointing. Uh, hopefully, someone can meet Sir Elton and ask how he feels about this. But here's what's really been interesting. His top foreign policy aides have been defending him on this. They aren't being like, yeah, that's just, you know, that's our boss. <laughs> They're saying it's worked. There's uh, UN ambassador Nikki Haley uh, has said that now the whole international community is referring to him as Rocket Man. And uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster just on uh, Thursday morning also said, yeah, totally behind this. This this makes sense. Well, this is sort of like when Trump referred to, I think it was ISIS as losers, is sort mm-hmm. of like this new language of of diplomacy and like and and policy, which is just incredibly informal, but like meant to, I guess, neg them a little bit into, oh my into God. bad, or like, <laughs> like yes. embarrassment for oh policy. My God. It's fascinating. It's, we're we're like pickup artists, but for you know <laughs> deals to solve world peace, I guess is the strategy here. If there is a strategy. It's all very fun and good, but it's also terrifying because North Korea has been testing a lot more weapons. And I think a, a couple of weeks ago we discussed like their their big test of the of their most recent bomb. I mean, w- you've been watching the General Assembly haze. Mm-hmm. Is there discussion about what's next? here like what are the next steps i mean i know that there's a lot of rhetoric there's rocket man there's we're gonna rain fire and fury he told general assembly that they're just gonna destroy the country i guess but there are a ton of foreign policy implications to doing anything right and so what what does the international community think about this and where are we so what's really interesting about the north korea case is it is really a case where Pretty much the entire world does agree North Korea and nuclear weapons is a very bad combination to have out there. And despite all the disparaging remarks from Donald Trump and his administration about the United Nations, both, you know, since the administration started and the years beforehand, uh, the Republican Party has been very against the U.N. almost as a concept uh, at some points. But He's leaned very heavily on the U.N. as a way to get something done on North Korea. Nikki Haley's actually been very skillful in pushing through several resolutions since coming in as the U.N. ambassador in the Security Council, adding in more and more international sanctions on North Korea. What's really the focus now, I guess, should be on enforcement of those sanctions. Um, And that's where the U.N. General Assembly comes into play, because the U.S. has been really pushing its allies to take further action to actually make sure that when we say you can't import coal from North Korea, coal is not smuggled uh, into North Korea from wherever. And there, and so today is today is Thursday. We didn't do that at the top of the show, but it, it is it is Thursday morning, and later on this afternoon, we are going to be hearing a little bit more, I guess, about some more sanctions. Is that right? Yeah, it's really actually kind of unclear what exactly the announcement is going to be. Trump, during a uh, press availability with the Afghan president, actually, just simply said that more sanctions are coming on North Korea, which it makes sense. If they keep testing missiles just a little while ago, a couple days ago, they fired off another missile that flew over Japan and into the Pacific. And that has a lot of people freaked out. Uh, So the question is, and that's something we don't know yet, is whether that means that we're going to be pushing for more multilateral sanctions at the U.N. or if it means that the U.S. is going to unilaterally announce sanctions uh, against North Korea. 
so North Korea has been doing this shit for a very long time, right? Like three Correct. administrations. Are we just more freaked out because we see it more on the internet? My husband, who who has studied a lot of stuff in this region, argues that to me pretty regularly, that hmm. it is not actually scarier. It is just that I am seeing more of it. I love your husband, but I would disagree with him in this case. Because, okay. Um, Tell me. While, yes, it is more prevalent and it is easier to be like, ah, oh, God, it's right in front of us. North Korea has been steadily advancing in its weaponry over the last couple of years. Every time they shoot off a missile, they get data back from that that they can learn from and then improve the next missile that they launch. That's the real point about why the international community wants no more missile launches, missile tests. It's not that they're going to hit someone with them. It's that they're learning how to hit someone with them. And they're steadily improving. Uh, a couple of months ago now, they tested their first intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, Russia says that it wasn't ICBM. They're wrong. And what's freaking people out about that is the fact that once they get good at those, they can hit the continental U.S. And that's I think, why there's been such an urgency lately and why when leaving office, the Obama administration named North Korea as the number one foreign policy issue that would be facing the Trump administration. OK, I'm going to take that home and be like counterpoint. Mike. Boom. I win. <laughs> also, more, more, more good news for the Nocera household. Um, <laughs> with the sanctions, is there a sense that that's going to move the needle at all? Or is there sort of just like this this big waiting game for something kind of like more catastrophic or, or perhaps just more dramatic to happen for the ball to to, to move in, in any direction? Mm -hmm. So the answer on that is no one expects like these sanctions to force North Korea to immediately give up their nuclear weapons. They are a nuclear state at this point. It's it's a bit late for them to give up their nuclear program entirely. What the goal of sanctions is, though, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they are, they're selling you something, uh, should be to bring them to the table to negotiate on how to fold them into the international system. Nuclear weapons are, you know, clearly terrible threat to the world. But what's so scary about North Korea having them over, say, Israel is not necessarily that uh, they exist, is that there are no... Uh, rules in place for them on like constraining them there there's no promises for them not to use them there's no constraints on their uh, development of them further on stronger weapons on bigger faster missiles so the goal is to get them to come to the table and say okay here's what we're willing to agree to uh, and that's what these sanctions are doing and I, I think that It'll be really interesting to see what the Trump administration is doing as far as the new sanctions that they're about to announce. Because if it's more multilateral sanctions, they could be a little wishy-washy. But the U.S. has a lot of latitude for like secondary sanctions, not necessarily targeting North Korea, but countries that work with and trade with North Korea. And there's a lot of room there. The problem with that, though, is that you bump into the fact that China still considers North Korea for all its flaws, basically a client state. And so while they are putting some pressure on North Korea, too much pressure on Beijing itself could very much backfire. It sounds complicated. Because <laughs> it is! Foreign yeah. policy is like at least as complicated as healthcare, and there's millions <laughs> of more people involved, and nuclear fire, possibly. Ugh. Jesus. Wow. Okay. I'm going to go anyway. back on vacation. <laughs> I'm going to move to Montana, Charlie. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, let me tell you, there is plenty of space here. All right. Hayes, get back to work. I know uh, 
You have some stuff to cover today. Will do. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Hi. And now for a bit of an announcement. After six months of doing this wonderful show, we're going to take a bit of a break. And over here at BuzzFeed News, we're going to take some time and rethink how we do politics podcasts. So what does that mean exactly? What it means is that the last episode of No One Knows Anything will be October 6th. And from there, there's going to be a break. And then you're just going to have to stay tuned. And when there is news to share, do keep an eye on the podcast feed because we will keep you posted and be throwing things in there from time to time when we have stuff to tell you. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer, Eleanor Kagan, and Alex Laughlin. The show is edited by Catherine Miller. Production support comes from Veronica Doolin. Our music is by Beauty Pill. You can find us on Twitter at Kate Nocera and at C. Warzel. Next time on No One Knows Anything, Charlie just makes slow grunting noises for 20 minutes.